0: Good morning, and uh, welcome to the Cato Institute, and uh, welcome virtually to uh, all of you watching at home uh, to the 2016 Cato Institute Surveillance Conference, uh, something of a now annual tradition, uh, a day-long event where we explore uh, a full uh, array of the diverse uh, legal policy and uh, technological issues surrounding uh, government surveillance for both law enforcement and intelligence purposes. 2016 is, I think, a, 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 a case in point of the possibly apocryphal Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. Uh, for better or worse, the Obama administration has shown us uh, eight years of, uh, of perhaps surprising uh, continuity with its predecessor. Uh, that is, civil libertarians can look back on the last eight years and count uh, some Uh, victories in the war to protect privacy. We can look back on the first real uh, diminution or contraction of the post 9-11 expansion of intelligence surveillance in the form of the USA Freedom Act and uh, uh, presidential policy directive uh, 28, an executive order um, constraining somewhat the ability of uh, the intelligence community to uh, collect and mass information about persons abroad. Um, And now uh, at the same time uh, an entrenchment of uh, of really the bush era approach to the war on terror um, so those who listening to candidate Obama pledged that for example, in uh, an Obama administration, there would be no more national security letters uh, used to gather information about people not suspected of any wrongdoing were um, perhaps disappointed, but uh, neither uh, did the Expansion of that surveillance continue entirely unabated, we began to see the wave break and roll back. Um, now, the only thing we can really be sure of is that we cannot expect continuity. Um, we have a, a rather extraordinary year, and like so many other things in two thousand and sixteen it 's uh, essentially impossible uh, to talk about this topic without talking about donald Trump um, uh, someone who really comes to uh, the highest executive office in the land, without uh, a very clear sense of what his platform on uh, a whole range of issues outside his core concerns uh, looks like, but who has uh, already uh, created a great deal of anxiety, both uh, in the intelligence community itself, um, by his sort of demonstrable uh, distrust in that community, um, And at the same time, among civil libertarians, Um, he has demonstrated the kind of uh, character that that, uh, seems disposed to hold grudges and uh, pursue slights, Um, a kind of Nixonian uh, instinct for uh, enemies lists, and in particular, for using uh, private information uh, to punish political enemies. Um, And at the same time, someone with a seemingly very broad uh, idea of the powers of the presidency uh, without any kind of clear sign of uh, a regard for the constitutional limitations on the powers of that office. And so, um, again, as it seems to be inevitable in 2016, we need to begin a discussion of these important policy issues by asking what the next four to eight years uh, look like under. A Trump administration. What is the shape of the national security state, the deep state, the intelligence state, under uh, under Donald Trump? Why have so many national security and intelligence officials regarded his ascendance to the White House with something approaching panic? Uh, and to discuss that, we've uh, uh, we've assembled, I think, a really excellent panel of uh, veterans of uh, the intelligence and national security communities. Uh, and to introduce that panel, we have uh, one of the best national security reporters working today. Uh, we have Shing uh, Harris of the Wall Street Journal, uh, who is the author of an excellent uh, book called The Watchers, and more recently, uh, an also excellent book called At War, uh, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. Uh, I cannot think of a, a better person or a better panel to kick off the 2016 Cato Surveillance Conference, uh, with an analysis of intelligence under the Trump administration, and I'll welcome our first panel to the stage. Thank you
1: all. I'm Shane Harris with The Wall Street Journal. Um, the title of our panel today uh, is intelligence under the Trump administration, and as I was getting ready for this, I thought if only we had a more interesting topic. to get things <laughs> um, Yeah, so uh, I am going to dispense with lengthy introductions so we can get started, but obviously I'm going to introduce everyone here. Uh, Matt Olson, here on the left, uh, who was, among other things, Director of the National Counterterrorism Center and General Counsel at the NSA. Kerry Cordero, here to my left, who has uh, been Counsel to the uh, Assistant Attorney General for National Security, among other things. Tim Edgar, who was the first Director of Civil Liberties and Privacy uh, for the National Security Staff in the White House. And Susan Hennessy, formerly the NSA General Counsel's Office and now the managing editor of Lawfare, which uh, if you're not reading, uh, I hope you will be. Um, so clearly the past uh, five days have seen some extraordinary uh, developments. Uh, to, if you're here at a Cato conference on surveillance, I probably don't need to remind you what happened Friday night with the Washington Post story coming up, but just to kind of recap and set the stage a little bit for a discussion about intelligence in the coming Trump administration. Uh, obviously it was reported that the CIA briefed to some senators Uh, that there was a little bit of a tweak on an earlier assessment that they had made that uh, Russia had indeed uh, directed hacks against the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's campaign and some other political organizations for the purpose of interfering with U.S. elections, which was the unanimous conclusion that intelligence agencies came to in October. Now the CIA says, yes, and we think it was done in order to boost Donald Trump's chances of winning and to diminish Hillary Clinton's campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, it has obviously since come out that there's a little bit of daylight between the CIA's position and the FBI and the Director of National Intelligence, uh, which are not necessarily too sure that they share that view. Uh, But almost immediately after that story came out on Friday, Donald Trump, uh, as is his wont, put out a statement saying that uh, of the CIA, essentially don't believe them, these are the same people who got it wrong about Saddam Hussein and weapons of mass destruction. It uh, didn't take long for intelligence officials to start firing back with their own statements. And I think it's fair to say that what we have now is, uh, I think, probably unprecedented or at the very least, extraordinary, a rupture between the president-elect and the intelligence community that he is about to be directing and that is there to serve him uh, and his policy interests and goals and the people in his administration. Um, so that's new uh, and very interesting, um, and I want to get the discussion going with sort of talking about uh, that extraordinary development. And I want to turn first to Susan and say, you know, just a, a bit of a reaction. I mean, you've been in the intelligence community; you are now out of it. You follow these issues very closely. Kind of what you're seeing in this initial sort of you know the, the, these salvos going back and forth, and, and and we'll talk about this with everyone, but. Also, what this is like for somebody inside the intelligence community, you think, watching this extraordinary drama play out?
2: All right, so I think the first thing that's sort of important to understand is um, the, the intelligence community is having very marginal disagreements about whether or not there is sufficient evidence to um, to say that there was a particular motive. Um, there's there's broad um, unanimous agreement that there was Russian interference, um, that that interference did in fact uh, at least assist Donald Trump or aird his benefit, even if it didn't change the outcome of the election necessarily. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the second thing that I think it's, it's sort of important for context is to understand that um, uh, we, wouldn't, we shouldn't want a president to take intelligence as gospel, right? Any intelligence that comes up, that is the fact. You know, it's actually a positive thing to have presidents and presidents, uh, president-elects that have a little bit of skepticism, right? The intelligence community is not infallible. Um, that said, Donald Trump's statements are really incredibly ex- extraordinary and, um, and really consequential. Um, one, he is uh, outright rejecting without providing any kind of evidence or reason for why. Um, Those unanimous assessments, right, he's not just saying that he doesn't believe uh, it was Russia, he's saying maybe it's China, maybe it's some guy on a bed, right? I mean, he really is sort of um, uh, just refusing to even uh, acknowledge that this might be true. Um, And then second, he's actually accusing the intelligence community of being political or partisan. Um, And that is a really, really consequential statement um, for a president to make. Um, The intelligence community uh, obviously uh, engages in some controversial action. Sometimes they get things right, sometimes they get things wrong. Um, They are not a political body. They do not do things for political purposes. Um, They do things for the purposes of, uh, so that senior leadership of the United States um, can make decisions based on uh, facts. And so that's the area in which I think it becomes very, very challenging for someone serving in the intelligence community to say, you know, they're really being accused by their boss of violating one of the most important fundamental tenets of intelligence, which is your duty is to the mission and and to your country and not to a political party.
1: Matt, let me turn to you. I mean, as someone who has obviously briefed senior policymakers, I presume has briefed the president before, what's that first meeting like with a President Donald Trump where he sits down with his, you know, people from even from the career ranks, let's say, people who he doesn't know, people who he's openly questioned, their uh, their the accuracy of their analysis, their intent, as Susan has laid out. What's that first meeting like? And then how do you how does that begin to set the tone for a relationship?
3: Well, I, I would agree with with what Susan said. I mean, I w- and take it maybe even further in terms of the, the intelligence community not being political and, and how how important that is to the community at large. I and mean, in fact, it's probably the single, um, you know, the single most significant norm in among intelligence officials is that their efforts, their intelligence collection, and their analysis is not informed by anything other than the, their effort to discern the truth. Uh, again, not infallible. Um, and I think it's right for uh, the president and other policymakers to question the intelligence uh, officials who brief. The, them and in fact, I've, and I've been in that position, right? So I've been uh, the subject of skeptical and probing questioning by the president and by cabinet members and members of the National Security Council. But, but never, uh, and nor could I com- could I imagine uh, a situation where the conclusions we've reached or the analysis that we're providing is questioned uh, based on uh, the motives of the people delivering that message, that they're that they're being political. So to you know, answer your question, Shane, and, and it's and it's, it's consequential, it's alarming, and it's dangerous uh, to have that be the view of the president-elect, of the intelligence that he's receiving, that it has uh, been politicized. Um, it's dangerous to our national security. Um, but to your question, Shane, on the first meeting, I, I would very much expect that the, the first person who's there is going to be treat the, that briefing like they would every other briefing. There's not going to be any uh, whiff of... Of acrimony or um, or you know or controversy, the information is going to be delivered uh, just as you would uh, expect and hope that it would be delivered. I mean, and this is the last thing I'll say. I mean, on this question, which is sure. I mean, the head of the CIA is a political appointee, The head of the FBI um, has been appointed and, and Senate confirmed, but the you know everybody else, pretty much in the intelligence community, everybody who's out on the front line collecting information, collecting intelligence, and everyone who's preparing the analysis are not political. Um, and they're the ones who are preparing this information to be delivered uh, to, the, to high-ranking government officials and the president. So it's, it, it truly is not a political enterprise and, and, you know, I think it just speaks of the lack of experience, and, and perhaps worse, of the president-elect that that's his perspective.
1: Kerry, one of the things that's come out <clears throat> in the reporting in the past few days is that that daylight that I referred to between the FBI saying we're not so sure this was done to help Trump and the CIA saying, no, we think it was, may revolve around sort of different standards or methods for assessing information in the law enforcement context versus the intelligence context. Or in intelligence, you look at context, you maybe even intuit some things, whereas in law enforcement, you're looking for things that you might be able to prove in a court of law. Um, as somebody who you know worked in national security in the Justice Department, in that kind of that first environment that I'm sort of scoping out there in terms of uh, facts more as evidence and more concrete. And I'm curious what you make of these, the, these differences that are being reported in the assessment of what Russia was up to, and do you think that matters?
4: Yeah, so um, so my sense, having uh, been at the Justice Department and also um, worked in the intelligence community, is, the, is that this FBI, CIA, um, split that's being reported and sort of emphasized in the reports over the last couple days is perhaps being a bit overplayed. Um, an FBI versus CIA narrative is sort of convenient and, um, and I would argue maybe a little bit lazy that, that that's sort of where the reports automatically go. Um, intelligence assessments are based on the information available and the CIA uh, obviously has come to whatever is its assessment, the argument that the FBI, and I've seen this in various reports, that the FBI has to adhere to a court-ready level of evidence is not reflective of what they do on their intelligence side. So the FBI is an organization um, that has dual roles. It has a traditional law enforcement function um, that's primarily carried out through its criminal investigative um, divisions. And then it has a national security function. And the national security branch and uh, the national security functions are part of the intelligence community. And particularly after September 11th, the FBI has gone through a significant transformation to enhance its national security and intelligence capabilities and the professionalism of its intelligence Uh, intelligence-related workforce. In other words, the workforce that is working on intelligence assessments, um, looking at bigger picture issues, and not simply gathering evidence for a crime. So I I view these recent emphasis on the FBI versus CIA um, issue as as perhaps a little bit overplayed. Um, But picking up also on what uh, Susan and Matt were describing, I think it's worthwhile to step back and look at what is the role of the intelligence community. And the role of the intelligence community is is in sort of short shrift twofold. One is to provide uh, sort of tactical intelligence to war fighters, counterterrorism operators, intelligence analysts who are trying to generate uh, sort of information that supports particular investigations or particular operations. But the other function is to provide bigger picture assessments and assessments of various national security issues that are going around uh, around the world to inform policymakers and to inform the president who is their number one policymaking customer. And so, uh, so the challenge for the intelligence community, in this current environment that they are finding themselves in with the president-elect is going to be to figure out how to reach him, how to communicate to him the value of what they do in a way that will hopefully inform his decision-making process going forward.
1: Right, right, maybe it, and not to be flip about this, but maybe it's like you know his campaign aid saying Twitter or cable news is a way to get to him. You already see people in his circle, it seems, trying to figure out, well, how do we convey information to him in what we would see as sort of an unconventional manner. So that that relationship seems like it's already being established just with the people in his own orbit. Um, Tim, you wrote on Lawfare, right, about uh, the question that has come up in recent days about whether uh, electors in the Electoral College should receive some kind of a briefing or or, uh, a readout from the intelligence community about what exactly happened with the Russia hacks, and this has been prompted by some electors coming forward. Talk a little bit about that, and and in that context, what perhaps doing that would, in that kind of transparency might do for the broader public's need, I think, clearly to understand what happened here.
5: Sure, well, my basic position, um, which I thought about carefully, is whether the electors who've asked for a briefing should get one, and my conclusion was that they should at some level of classification get a briefing. Um, And the reason is that there is a plausible constitutional argument um, that electors should exercise some independent judgment in making their choice. Uh, Some people agree with that argument and some people don't. Um, But it seems to me that if there is such a plausible argument, then the intelligence community should treat the electors just the way they would treat any other elected official, Uh, whether it was a mayor, a governor, or a member of Congress who needs information to inform their decision. Um, so, you know, one thing we've heard today from Susan, from Kerry, and from Matt is that, yeah, there might be slight disagreement about the motive that the Russians had in engaging in the hacking, but there is overwhelming agreement that this hacking actually did take place for the purpose of interfering in the elections, uh, that it's quite solid, uh, the information that uh, attributes this to the Russians. But, you know, your average member of the Electoral College who's sitting there watching cable news like everybody else and reading various sources and hearing unnamed officials being quoted in stories, um, you you could see that they would say, well, the president-elect thinks it might be some guy in New Jersey. Um, I I think that they have a right, frankly, under the Constitution to be informed directly about what is the intelligence community's view on this matter, uh, and then they can make up their own mind as to whether it, it, it should matter in their vote. Um, I also think that this should only happen if an elector requests it. I don't think that the Intelligence community should be intervening and saying, hey, you have to come and get this briefing, um, because there may be electors who, again, don't view that as their constitutional role. Um, but, you know, it's unprecedented, no question. That's a completely unprecedented position that I'm taking, but the situation is unprecedented. We've never had the American Intelligence Community make an assessment like this between the time when the vote took place and the vote of the Electoral College took place, um, and it seems to me that, again, just as in any other situation in which the intelligence community needs to brief elected officials, this is no different.
1: Do you think, I mean, is part of this, the, the need to then convey more broadly to the public, going farther than that October statement? Yeah. yeah to go back to that October statement, so just briefly, it's the intelligence community under the imprimatur of the, the Director of National Intelligence and in the Homeland Security Department put out this, I think, really extraordinary statement not only attributing the hacks to the senior-most levels of the Russian government, but attributing a motive to interfere with the elections. <laughs> the intelligence community is usually very reluctant to attribute motive even privately in a briefing. Do you think, that, so what you're talking about would go one step beyond that and try to convey to the public the gravity of this and maybe even show a little leg on what the evidence of it is.
5: I, I think so. If it can be done without disrupting sources and methods, there's a lot of public information in some cases from cybersecurity companies about why they think that these particular hacks were done by particular uh, uh, hackers. Um, but basically, yes, the public, I think, is, is has very serious questions about what happened uh, before the election. Um, with the statements by Comey and the FBI, uh, this statement by the intelligence community, and then you tell us, you know, this is sort of your, your average person sitting there saying, wait a second, um, I understand that there was this statement before the election, but now after the election, they're going further and saying this was to help Trump. That's a very explosive conclusion. No question that's an explosive conclusion. Um, just like, uh, you know, some of the statements made about the investigation of Hillary uh, Clinton's email server were explosive at the time. And so I think there's a lot of review that needs to happen. Um, Transparency needs to happen. And, you know, Congress needs to look at this and say, what in the world is going on with the intelligence community and the election? Um, And and I think it's a complicated story. Uh, I don't think that all the people involved are necessarily doing these things for the worst reasons that people think they might be, uh, including Comey and others. Uh, But they have some explaining to do, and they should do that explaining.
1: Matt, do you think that Picking up on what Tim's idea is here, is there a way that the administration could, without compromising sources and methods, or at least to a point that was unacceptable to compromise them, craft more of a revealing public statement than has already been put out?
3: Yeah, I think definitely um, more could be said and and needs to be said. You know, what I I really defer to Tim and others who who are studying this issue from a constitutional perspective on how that could impact the the Electoral College. But just, you know, putting that aside, we have an Really in a remarkable set of circumstances here where we have you know, Russian interference with our election and uh, apparently Russian uh, effort to pick a candidate in our election uh, and uh, the, and this is just something that demands uh, further inquiry and more transparency, whether that's Congress, a commission, you know there's going to be more to do to get to the bottom of this and to your question that you know, the, I, I think what Tim said is right about. With the intelligence community is is reluctant to make a statement, or maybe you said this, Shane, uh, that is as definitive as as, the, as they made back in October. You know, that's a, that was pretty extraordinary to be that definitive at the time. There's They've apparently gone further now uh, in deciding or reaching the conclusion that the, uh, you know, that the Russians were rooting for Trump. I agree with you, Kerry, completely that m- m- too much is being made of an FBI-CIA uh, rift. That's that seems to me to be overblown and sort of a convenient way for Congress to pick sides in this debate. Um, I suspect that there is uh, an opportunity for the intelligence community as a as a body, as a whole, under the DNI's leadership, to put out more information without compromising sources and methods about what we know, uh, and and to continue to be transparent here. And I think this is a situation where um, you know our sort of our democracy demands that level of transparency.
1: I want to get at sort of. what what you make of this if you are a, you know, 15 years in the intelligence community employee uh, or a recent addition to the intelligence community or the Justice Department or other parts of the national security community. Not only watching all of this, but taking into account many of the things that the president-elect and his soon-to-be advisors said about national security policy in the campaign, which we'll drill into a bit, you know, as we go along in the discussion. But to take it sort of at a broad level and just recapping, things like bringing back waterboarding and worse... Uh, uh, his views on uh, surveillance, on privacy, on drones, these kind of things. And a lot of, perhaps, assumptions that people make, and we'll talk maybe about whether those assumptions are correct, that there is sort of an authoritarian instinct in a national security policy of the Trump administration. You know, Susan, you wrote very powerfully and pretty passionately about this question of whether, if you're a person in the IC who is you know, anonymous to the rest of the world, is not somebody who's going to be necessarily in the Oval Office briefing the president, but has to, on a daily basis, carry out and represent to the best of your abilities those policies and at the same time defend your oath to protect the Constitution, what do you do? And kind of walk through a little bit your thinking about the thought process of that and what you've advised people in that position.
2: Right, so um, I'll even say, sort of, I I wrote a little bit on this um, the day after the election, right, sort of really um, uh, speaking to former colleagues in in a public forum and saying, "Um, it's your duty to serve, it's your duty to sort of stand guard on these institutions and also um, help our president succeed. Um, You know, Donald Trump was elected and and we should all sort of um, uh, wish for his success. Um, Our fortunes are are all tied here. Um, uh, A month later, um, I I have found that position sort of tested, right, Um, it was my sort of sincere hope that um, um, uh, the rhetoric would, um, would be toned down and we would see sort of um, uh, more responsible uh, discussions going on. Um, since then, I think almost every day has brought sort of a new challenge to those people. Um, and so, uh, look, I think there are a lot of people who are facing um, incredibly difficult situations um, and, and difficult decisions about whether or not they should stay and serve, both at the political level and also for that career staff. Um, I don't think we should underestimate how consequential that is to our national security not just for these four years or eight years um, but you know for 30 years right um, uh, t- we have uh, a sort of groups of people who are um, who are graduating law schools and graduate schools and schools of foreign service um, that aren't going to the government um, we have people who um, are leaving the intelligence community to take much uh, more highly paid sort of prestigious positions in um, in the private sector. Um, uh, the people who serve in the intelligence community um, uh, by and large do so out of a sense of duty and patriotism and and wanting to be part of something larger than themselves. you know, I, I don't think anyone on this stage has risked their lives for intelligence. Maybe Matt. I don't know what that guy did. Um, uh, you know, but but there are, you know, it's not an overstatement to say that there are people who risk their lives for this information. Um, and, and they do so because they think it matters. They think it makes a difference. Um, and so this message coming from, you know, literally the president-elect in the United States saying, um, what you do doesn't matter. I don't believe it. Um, I, I question your motives. Um, and I'm not going to listen to it. I think whenever we look at, at the group of people that are sitting in career Positions, I think a lot of people are thinking, um, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Um, If this causes sort of a a mass exodus from the intelligence community um, or or sort of a a large group of people that don't join the intelligence community, we could miss out on a generation of talent. Um, The consequences of that sort of over time, I I mean, really could be uh, almost immeasurable.
1: So, go ahead, Gary.
2: So,
4: I have a little different take on this. uh, appreciating sort of everything everything, and the concerns that, that Susan has. Um, the first is, is that I know that there's a lot of people, particularly um, perhaps in the libertarian community and, and people who might be here at the Cato surveillance conference who perhaps had very significant concerns that a Trump administration is going to abuse surveillance authorities. Um, and, and I know that that is a real concern of some people in this space. Um, having worked at the Justice Department with the intelligence community. Um, There were other reasons that I was not in favor of the Trump candidacy throughout the campaign. His potential abuse of surveillance authorities was not one of them. Um, and that's because I do have a deep level of confidence in the institutional systems, um, in the laws and the institutional systems and the checks and balances and the oversight structures that exist. In the fact, as Matt alluded to, that there are not the intelligence community is not made up primarily of uh, political appointees. There are far, uh, very few, only at the very senior levels. And so the workforce really is um, a workforce that is used to uh, and trained in uh, abiding by the law, abiding by the rules, abiding by policies. It's a very regulated, uh, particularly at NSA, a very regulated uh, environment. Um, so so those concerns, I have a fairly significant um, degree of confidence in with respect to uh, potential use of surveillance authorities in particular there's some other areas you know that maybe we can talk about later um, if folks are interested that that if I was in the privacy or civil liberties community I would sort of pay more attention to um, but uh, but the surveillance area is one that that I think we can have a significant degree of confidence in the workforce with respect to the workforce though and so I guess I would I understand that there's concerns and certainly um, Perhaps of people who are thinking about entering um, the workforce, there's some concerns. But I would say that having spent a lot of time in the national security community, um, this is not a community of snowflakes. Mm -hmm. All right, this is people who um, can take a little bit of heat. And so I guess I would say that I'm not quite as concerned that um, that. People are going to flee the workforce. Certainly, if they've been there for a while, uh, they've been through a lot of ups and downs. Particularly in the last 15 years, they've felt political pressure, and so uh, they've seen leaders come and go. And there's a good chunk of the workforce that knows that you know, sort of, this too will pass. Yeah. And so, um, so I'm I'm confident that that a significant. Part of the workforce is going to do what they've always done, which is to put their head down and do their job, and let the senior leadership levels sort of work through this political challenge.
1: And for a lot of people, you know, it, it is a job. Their options in the private sector might not be as obvious as we may think they are. So yeah, go ahead, Matt.
3: Do you want to go, Tim?
5: I'll go, go ahead.
3: Okay, so lots to say on this point because I and I think you did it. I think you're right, Carrie. Talk about you know first talking about the policies and and. Let me just agree with you on, I think, on the surveillance point to a certain degree. I think it will be tested on on this under a Trump administration, whether or not the checks and balances that have been put in place are sufficient. But I think that almost highlights the the contrast with the rest of counterterrorism policy where there's not those checks and balances, Mm -hmm. where the potential for abuse is much greater, leading into the second question on, you know, the debate about whether to work for a Trump administration. And... You know, when, when the mantra is drain the swamp and you are coming out of uh, graduate school, and I'll tell you, at the National Counterterrorism Center, we had the pick of folks coming out to come work. Uh, they could have gone to um, Wall Street. They could have gone to Silicon Valley. They wanted to go fight al-Qaeda. And we had an incredible workforce. And my gut, and if I was advising somebody in that position whether to, whether to choose the intelligence community or to choose one of those other jobs when the president talks about draining the swamp and... Uh, talks about uh, dismissing without evidence the considered views that you are working you know, night and day, night and day to put out, um, I'd be hard-pressed to advise someone to do that. And that is extremely dangerous. And that's the, at the working level. And then I, you know, sort of my friends who are trying to decide whether to work at a higher level is a, sort of a different set of questions, but I think even more um, starkly put to somebody who is going to be in a position to actually implement the policies of... Uh, registering Muslims or killing terrorist families or bringing back torture. Uh, that, I think, requires a, a degree of sort of moral searching about whether you would be willing to put yourself into a position to implement those policies that in some ways the person coming out of, you know, graduate school to join the intelligence community doesn't have to face. But I think across the board, this is a... Uh, and I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I think it's a crisis for our country when you look at um, where the intelligence the intelligence community goes from a workforce perspective uh,
1: in the next four years. So your advice is a useful reminder that even in a, in a bureaucracy as disparate and large with tens of thousands of people as the intelligence community, views, tones, cultures, policies, they are set from the top.
5: Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was just going to- jump in then. You will come back. Yeah, I, I was going to disagree uh, to some degree on, with Kerry with on this point on surveillance abuse. Um, I came into the intelligence community from the ACLU in the middle of the uh, second uh, Bush term. And it was a very difficult and wrenching decision for me to make um, because, you know, my former colleagues really looked on this as going to the other side. Um, uh, The expansion of surveillance powers after 9-11 was very dramatic. Um, But I never had that feeling uh, either, uh, you know, on the inside certainly, but even before that um, the question was always potential for abuse. I I think that was the biggest concern we always had was these were broad powers, very broad powers. And... um, Ways in which the checks and balances had gotten out of whack before 9-11 were being sort of shoved aside. Um, And I I think the question now actually is not potential anymore, but real abuse. And the reason I say that is um, two things. One is a lot of the powers and controls that Kerry discussed are really executive branch powers. Talking about Executive Order 12333, residential policy directives, um, other kinds of directives, which can be changed. Now, it's not so easy to change it bureaucratically. Um, but the power is still there in the Oval Office to change those, as long as you're not talking about a statute. And even with a statute we saw with Stellar Wind in the Bush administration, there can be creative legal arguments to get around statutes that can be, uh, it can be done. And I don't have any faith whatsoever in the Trump Justice Department or the Trump Intelligence uh, Director's Office not to take those uh, powers to the darkest corner of the room, uh, e- even more so than under George W. Bush, I think. Um, And then you put that together with what you might call the Trump factor, Uh, Bannon and the alt-right, Flynn, these people in serious positions of power in the White House, saying, gosh darn it, you know, I know that there is evidence that the Muslim Brotherhood has infiltrated, you know, these political groups. Go get it for me. Don't tell me that there isn't any evidence. Um, Under our system, even with these controls, um, I think you know, when you loosen those controls potentially um, and when you have that kind of pressure, uh, there's a lot of discretion down there in, in the intelligence community, in the FBI, in the NSA. Um, and how you interpret those rules and whether you interpret them strictly um, the way that they are interpreted now or whether you stretch them uh, is very much um, something that, that we need to watch out for. So I don't think that would happen overnight. Um, It might take a precipitating event like a terrorist attack to make the worst abuses happen. Uh, But I do think that we have to be careful of assuming that because we have a system of checks and balances, um, that it's going to necessarily withstand this kind of test. Um, I'm I'm writing a book now called Beyond Snowden. I was told that I should mention that at this panel by my editor. Um, So I'm writing a book called Beyond Snowden. And I am literally writing another chapter to the book because there is another chapter of What's going to happen in the future? And I don't necessarily predict that we're facing this dystopian reality, uh, but I do think that, in a way, there's a question mark at the end of this book, which was very much celebrating the transparency and checks and balances that I uh, fought very hard to, uh, to, to to help work on uh, when I was in the government. Um, but now I think there's a question mark. Um, you know, I was hoping we would get some additional reforms uh, in the next few years. And I think that, um, you know, to strengthen those checks and balances, and now I'm worried that instead of the glass being half full, which was kind of what my book was about, that there should at least be some position that perhaps the glass is, in fact, half empty. Um, so I'm, I'm concerned about those things. Gary, you want to make a point, and then Susan is going to jump in.
4: Sure. So so I think for the reasons that, that Tim and Matt describe, um, the president-elect's leadership decisions in the national security space, who he puts into leadership positions, are of highly, highly significant consequence. And there are still some positions that we have not seen filled yet, the director of national intelligence being one very important one. And that is an area, um, and and so some things that I would hope the president-elect would look for in terms of selecting the new DNI um, would be first somebody with extraordinarily amount of uh, an extraordinary amount of experience in the intelligence business this is not a job for a novice for somebody who's gonna have a very high learning curve. So somebody with experience in the intelligence business, somebody with exceptional enterprise management skills, the intelligence community budget is over $50 billion, 17 different elements, um, you need an extraordinary uh, manager and leader, and, and then also somebody who knows how to bring consensus because there is sort of this web uh, of, of different elements that, and players that are involved. And so it's a really important decision that he still has to make. Um, And and I think a position like that, if he selects somebody who has leadership, that will hopefully um, lower the temperature a little bit on the concerns about some of the um, atrocious policies that he uh, proposed on the campaign trail, like creating a Muslim registry or bringing back torture, whatever that means. Um, If somebody who is a professional who is respected in the community is selected for that position, I think that will give um, the uh, workforce a significant um, uh, breath of relief. Susan.
2: So I think it's important that we be um, uh, sort of both sides, right, left, sort of to the extremes, be um, really, really disciplined and candid about sort of what we're talking about um, because this is sort of a perilous moment. Um, so there is, especially when we talk about sort of the potential for surveillance abuses, um, right? So there's this question of things that are plainly illegal. They plainly violate uh, statutes. So they're plainly unconstitutional. They plainly violate the laws of war. And then there's some question about uh, is uh, could that actually happen? I'm personally relatively confident that it wouldn't happen. Um, I think people would resign. I think people would refuse to do it. I think there's enough sort of bureaucratic safeguards. Um, uh, There's a separate question about um, uh, sort of the the existing policy. Um, We are no longer at that um, chalk-on-the-toes place, right? There is some space between uh, the way the intelligence community operates right now and what it could do theoretically within the law that might nevertheless be either abusive or intrude onto civil liberties or or be a bad idea, right? I think this is one of the things people are missing um, Whenever we talk about Muslim registries, for example. Um, uh, We don't target Muslim populations uh, partly because it's it's contrary to our values and um, uh, sort of uh, abhorrent to uh, to the founding vision of this country. Um, we also don't do it because it's a bad idea that doesn't work. Um, and so these are sort of uh, those policy questions. Um, but whenever Tim talks about um, you know the the potential for surveillance abuses, um, I, I, I align far more with Carrie's sort of view. Um, I don't think that it is. Um, uh, it's not possible to, uh, to violate the law or the Constitution at the NSA um, without lots and lots of people being aware of it. Um, so that's lots of people in, in the judicial branch, lots of people in, in the legislative branch, and lots of people in the executive branch. Um, and so I think that we should be focusing um, not on relitigating, going back to sort of our ideological precommitments and having the, the same fights we were having sort of six months ago or or, or Three years ago, um, but instead of sort of saying, "Okay, um, what are our um, uh, what are the pre-political commitments here, um, and how can we actually?" Uh, Uh, look for reforms um, that are are going to meaningfully respond to to sort of this new threat. Um, As someone who has been a a strong defender of the intelligence community, um, uh, uh, against even uh, Tim specifically as sort of of a critic and really has a lot of faith, um, I'll be candid that Trump has challenged um, some of my sort of core uh, assumptions, including that we would only elect a, a... mentally fit uh, individual who loved the Constitution the way the rest of us do. I'll be candid about that. And so, whenever I think about, okay, um, how does this shift me? What, what am I thinking about now that I wouldn't think about under um, uh, even you know had a Jeb Bush or John Kasich or, or any you know Republican Democrat, I, I wouldn't have been concerned. Um, for me, I think that it's uh, it's building in transparency mechanisms um, that can't be evaded. That, that uh, making sure um, uh, that the general counsel's offices of, uh, of various agencies uh, have to see those decisions because I have a lot of faith that those general counsel's offices uh, will do the right thing will use their inspector generals will use their intelligence committees um, ensuring that congressional committees have insight because um, I have a lot of faith that those congressional committees if they see abuses um, will act to enact statutes or, or bring it to the floor and so those are the things um, I, I just think that it's uh, it's critical to, to really sort of think about um, what is different here um, because if we end up having kind of the same debate that we've been having for the past I mean, honestly you know 15 years um, uh, that's that's where I think it, it'll be distracting and, and something really bad potentially could happen in terms of abuse.
5: So I, I think that I agree with the idea that things have changed and are different. And in fact, one thing I've thought about is how the national security community in some ways, which was on the other side of many of those debates in the Bush years, may step in and be an <coughs> ally of the civil liberties community on important issues, even if they disagree on specifics when it comes to things like Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or other policy disagreements that they're going to continue to have, uh, there may be an alliance on uh, basic values. And in fact, that's one of the themes of my book, Beyond Snowden. Um, So I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, But I guess my point is that we did, I think, think about issues of presidential power with a likelihood that there would be different presidents of different political parties and political philosophies, but not with the idea that the president is kind of going and cheering on what we would see, certainly in the campaign, as straight up abuses. I mean, this was, we had Richard Nixon as a president, but he didn't promise to engage in abuses openly in the campaign. Uh, We had to listen to the White House tapes to find out about what he really thought. Uh, Now we just follow Trump's Twitter feed and we get the same kind of rhetoric um, that we used to get listening to those tapes. So I think what I'm worried about is not so much, you know, relitigating those fights, but just looking at, just in a broader sense, the large scope of presidential discretion when it comes to surveillance Um, and and thinking about how that might be be abused. Um, and, you know, we don't know. It hasn't happened yet, obviously. Um, but we should be, when, when Susan and Carrie both say, well, they're not going to do something that's illegal or unconstitutional, um, I think that's right. But what concerns me is the boundaries of what is legal and what is constitutional under these, uh, uh, d- just a couple of examples. Um, most of what the NSA does overseas is not regulated by statute or by the FISA court. Um, Sharing of that information with uh, more domestic agencies is primarily a function of executive order, 12333. Um, And, you know, what the FBI can do in terms of investigating a group, the hypothetical I gave of Bannon demanding, we need to go after these groups because they're all tainted by Muslim extremism. Um, That's very discretionary, and and there's good reasons for that, actually. I mean, we've wanted to have FBI offices have a good deal of discretion in these, you know, threat assessments and lower-level investigations. We've wanted to loosen up some of that information sharing. Those high walls were, you know, a problem for counterterrorism. So we've done these things. And we've put in place civil liberties officers like I was, uh, general counsel's offices, inspectors general, we've had more transparency. So we've, we've counterbalanced some of that with checks and balances. Um, but what I worry about is, is what I call the Trump factor. You know, does that kind of civil liberties protection, um, which is based on a certain degree of you know, adhering to basic norms, does that function in a Trump administration, I think it functions in a George W. Bush administration and a Barack Obama administration. I don't think it necessarily does. Um, you, you know, when you've got civil liberties officers and general counsel's offices and 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 maybe uh, the Wall Street Journal, you know, writing about this, you know, very broad surveillance program. Let's say in a year um, that 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 I'm hypothesizing, uh, does Trump, you know. Say, you know, we've we've made some mistakes, let's let's scale this back and focus it and make it more effective, which is what we would hope, or does he double down and declare war on his own his own overseers? Uh, it seems to me that all the evidence is he would do the second thing.
3: Matt. Uh, You know, and and Tim and I have gone back and forth and and argued and on opposite sides of a lot of issues, and and I'm finding myself sort of drawn into his his perspective a bit, either a, a tribute to your advocacy. <laughs> Just the, the state of the, my my mind and mood, um, because what I look, I I agree with with the point that we it, it actually surveillance law has actually developed more than some of the other areas of as I mentioned, sort of national security and counterterrorism law in terms of putting in these checks and balances, um, and so there is reason to think that somebody would blow the whistle if some if if the Trump administration tried to do something that was illegal, um, the, I think. That, and I fought hard, and, and for my 20 years in government, at least the last 10 when I worked on national security, for increasing information sharing, breaking down barriers to um, sharing information, foreign, domestic, within domestic agencies, um, and for the modernization of FISA so that we could have a better approach to, to surveillance. But I will say that, at least for my part, I did not, and not as I fought for these changes, I did not bargain on uh, President Trump. That was beyond my ability to imagine. Uh, as a leader of the country, in thinking about how these policies would actually be implemented by the chief executive, and so this is a time of sort of soul searching for me, kind of to what you said, Susan, Susan said, um, what you said, Susan, that um, you know you got to sort of think about it now in a different paradigm, and then I would suggest that the way to think about it is if you really want to sort of put yourself to the test, is not sitting here at Cato Institute in this panel, but the day after. A, an attack like what we saw in Paris uh, earlier this year occurs in Washington or New York or Chicago or anywhere and there's 150 hundred uh, and fifty dead Americans um, That's an attack that's been carried out by people connected to Isis and How the Trump administration responds when you have the statements that have been made uh, by the leaders in, uh, by, by, by President-elect Trump about um, his view of uh, what we should be doing with Muslims in this country, whether that's surveillance or, or, t- or torture uh, of terrorists or uh, killing terrorist families or um, the National Security Advisor saying that uh, fear of Muslims is rational. And how does our country, in, in, as represented by our government, respond in a crisis to that scenario? And that, I think, is uncharted territory uh, for me.
2: Is just a, just to I sort go of go follow up on uh, Matt's point, I, I do think it's, it's worthwhile actually sort of stating the, I don't know, the the, the other sort of grounding here, um, especially whenever we sort of talk about 702 specifically. Right. Um, uh, so I don't just support... Just briefly explain <laughs> 702 really quickly. For <laughs> uh, right, so 702 is, um, is the section of the, of the FISA Authorizations Act um, uh, that permits uh, uh, not bulk collection, but um, uh, a collection uh, targeted at foreign communications, um, but derived within the United States, um, uh, based on broader select. Than sort of the, the requirements of a specific warrant. It's sort of it's a, it's a split the baby between um, allowing the government to just search whatever they want um, and then those particularized warrants. Um, the controversy uh, by and large uh, extends to whenever uh, the communications of Americans are incidentally collected um, uh, during that, that targeting. Um, and so uh, Visa 702 is um, there's a sunset provision. Um, so it either has to be uh, affirmatively reauthorized by, uh, by uh, the end of uh, 2017 um, or it goes away, right? So there's sort of there's a forcing function and um, we have to have this debate no matter what. Um, previously, I think there had been a broad assumption that we were probably heading for clean reauthorization, meaning reauthorizing it as it currently existed. Maybe there was, there was some uh, you know, minor sort of questions about marginal uh, uh, transparency of civil liberties changes. Um, now there is a little bit more of a question about whether we'll see um, either uh, 702 not being reauthorized or, or whether or not we'll see really dramatic changes. Um, Within that context, whenever I think about um, uh, does President Trump sort of change my view of, for example, 702? No. um, I didn't support 702 as it currently exists because I super love the executive branch and think that it was cool information that they like to see. I saw it because I think that that information keeps Americans safe. I think not just Americans. I think it keeps people around the world safe. Um, uh, For whatever sort of criticism there were about 215 and sort of other programs, um, this is, uh, I would argue, one of the most important programs that the intelligence community has. Um, And I think the president needs that information, whether or not he's Donald Trump or Barack Obama or George Bush and so the challenge here is going to be um, how do we preserve that functional core of information um, that that I just think is absolutely critical um, while at the same time building in safeguards to ensure that uh, the rules that exist are being uh, followed and also that we have um, uh, you know prudent wise um, uh, sort of policy that that overlays um, you know those those basic statutory and constitutional protections
1: it a good. If you want to make a comment,
2: can I put yeah. a little yeah. Yeah, yeah. finer point on, on. on Section 702 a little bit? So, as Susan described, it's a
4: provision that was in the law that uh, enables the government to target non-U.S. persons who are reasonably believed to be outside the United States for foreign intelligence purposes, and uh, does so without requiring a probable cause warrant, but has approval by the FISA Court for how the surveillance is actually conducted and what procedures the government has to follow. And and picking up on Tim's point, where I think that there are potential areas of um, common interest amongst those of us who uh, have historically been um, supportive of government efforts to conduct uh, have have sort of robust surveillance authorities like 702 um, and and those who are concerned about privacy my perspective on that given where we are currently is that if the privacy community spends the next year fighting about 702, my view is that is a complete waste of their time and and it goes to the point of, section 702 is an area that is probably the most oversight-laden surveillance authority that we have in the national security space. That's the statutory authority that has tons of oversight, congressional oversight, Department of Justice oversight, Office of Director of National Intelligence oversight. That's the most regulated area. And so I think that that is Um, the area that folks should really be the least concerned about. If you want to talk about areas that I would find common ground on and where I think um, there should be kept a watchful eye, it would be if the new attorney general decides to reopen FBI investigative guidelines um, for domestic operations and lower the standards for investigating Americans. That's an area to keep an eye on. If you wanna talk about an area that um, should be of concern to civil libertarians, it's the proposal that I have not heard from the president-elect, but that I have seen, so I wanna qualify that, but that I have seen in some reports about maybe things that are of interest to some of his advisors would be the proposal to eliminate the director of national intelligence. The director of national intelligence creation was the single most important recommendation of the 9-11 commission to improve the workings of the intelligence community. And in the post-Snowden environment, the DNI has been on the forefront of increasing transparency, um, assisting in the release of of FISA court opinions that can be declassified, and uh, and ensuring that there is a common voice in briefing Congress. So those are areas where I think... um, those of us who have perhaps been on uh, different sides of issues would have common ground, and that I think are far more consequential than fighting over Section 702. Susan, do
1: you, you want to make a comment on
4: that?
5: Just, just very quickly, I agree with a lot of what Carrie just said, and um, you know, I think one of the things I've tried to do with my colleagues in the civil liberties and privacy community is to kind of re- remind them that uh, actually 702 does have a lot of safeguards, and that um, you know, if they want to look about. NSA surveillance and big data and that issue, which is, you know, an important issue. It's, it's, I agree that the AG guidelines are equally, if not more important, um, they should be focused on Executive Order 12333 as much as they are, where where there's less oversight. Um, And and that was part of my point, is that, you know, 702 is only about data inside the United States, um, and that's why you have to go to the FISA court. That's why there's these oversight mechanisms. Uh, Data that's outside the United States still basically... A fair game for the NSA as long as they're not intentionally targeting a specific American citizen. Um, and, and there's a ton of data all over the world these days. So, um, you know, it's still a little bit screwy. Yes, you know, Matt did a lot of jobs to modernize uh, FISIT in certain ways, but it's still a little bit screwy how uh, the law treats data based on not so much the sensitivity of that data or even whether it's being, uh, you know, what the purpose is, But based just on physical location of the data, in a globalized world, it it sort of doesn't make a lot of sense. Um,
1: So Susan, you made the point of 702 providing this, from the intelligence community's perspective, rich repository of information that is useful, that saves lives. It also comprises a a significant portion of the president's daily briefing, we've been told. President-elect Trump, in a lengthy interview with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday, which if you haven't seen it, it's worth going back and looking at, actually because he talks in great detail about a number of national security areas, talked about the fact that he has only received the, president, the daily briefing about three times uh, and gave some explanation for that. He said uh, he doesn't need to be told the same facts over and over, which implied that there was some repetitive elements to the briefing that he found not useful for him. Uh, praised the people who were giving him the briefing, which was an interesting sort of juxtaposition, considering he was sort of publicly fighting the CIA, but also praising the briefers, and said that the important thing to remember from his perspective was the vice president and uh, other people who were coming into his cabinet are getting briefed and he has let them know that there's something that I need to know that you think is important, alert me, I am there at a moment's notice. So he has kind of seemed to set up this framework, it seems to me, where um, I don't need the brief every day, Uh, uh, You tell me what I need to know if there's something new I I would like for you all to react to that I mean he is not the first person to decline getting the briefing every morning That is not unique to this president Um, But what do you make of that in terms of We're talking about these intelligence programs that not only provide information for the community But do inform the president on the state of the world What do you make of the fact that he's laid out this reaction to getting the briefing Who would like to chime in on it?
2: So, look, I think, I think it sort of goes back to um, uh, evidence-based policymaking, right? Um, uh, these are uh, enormously complex decisions. Um, it's really hard to get it right. Um, this is a little bit like a doctor saying, mm, you know what? I don't care so much about the x-rays or the tests or the blood tests. Those are like, there's a lot of math. It's like, that's boring. I think you have, mm, I don't know, and, and throws out whatever sort of his gut instinct is. I don't know, sometimes it might be right, and, and sometimes tests are wrong, and this isn't an exact science. But if you were looking at if your doctor was doing that, you would fire that person. You would say, that's not how good decisions are made. Good decisions are made because you collect the available evidence. Now, sometimes it is um, it is tedious. It is in the weeds. It is detail oriented. Um, uh, trust me, I was as disappointed as anyone to discover that NSA was a lot less like a Bourne movie. Uh, there was a lot more paperwork involved than I had anticipated. I'm um, right. that This stuff is uh, things that might sound, might sound repetitive to him. Um, to somebody versed in intelligence, actually understands. No, this is this is nuance. This is detail. This is significant. And so. I think this is sort of going back to his initial statements of kind of the general hostility um, to the evidence or information, uh, that, frankly, is scary to me. Um, you know, we, we have troops deployed around the world. Um, uh, the, the U.S. intelligence apparatus isn't just consequential to the United States, it's consequential to our allies. Um, uh, these are areas in which we really want someone to, uh, to take it seriously, to try and be getting it right, um, and to have someone say, like, uh, you know, not just, you know, PDB, not PDB, but intelligence, not intelligence paired with this kind of general hostility to the intelligence community. Um, you know, you guys got it wrong on WMDs, so, so who cares what you think? Uh, I, that, that to me is some of the most, um, frankly, frightening things that, that we're hearing.
1: Does it comfort you though, just to jump on that, and I wanna hear Kerry's point, that he's delegated, authorized, however you wanna look at it, uh, sort of the, the, to use your analogy, the other doctors under him on his team to get the x-rays and the blood tests and all that kind of thing every day.
2: So as long as um, those doctors are the ones making the decisions, there's there's not a ton of clarity here, and there's some sort of speculation that, um, that uh, Vice President-elect Pence will be um, sort of uh, the day-to-day president, while Donald Trump focuses on making America great again. Um, so there, there's a little bit of speculation there. At the same time, um, uh, Donald Trump appears to be making the appointments, um, uh, making the decisions, um, and so... Uh, yeah, you want uh, you want that person to be informed. Um, if he's uh, if he if he is not going to be interested in, in putting the work in and, and really um, uh, examining the evidence and and, and doing uh, you know, taking in sort of the facts, um, you would hope that he would also have the judgment to to understand that he shouldn't be making those decisions. Then, right? That there would be really sort of a, a clear delegation.
4: Okay. So two quick points. So one is, so so as this changes every single day, right, CNN reported yesterday that uh, the Trump team says that he is now receiving an intelligence briefing three times a week, which, from my perspective, is a uh, really positive development and, and big improvement from what was being, uh, you know, what he had relayed just last weekend. Um, and I think part of that is because... Uh, based on what he demonstrated throughout the campaign, there's concern in the national security community that he, that he really doesn't have a good knowledge of world events and uh, security challenges, and so that he would really benefit from his national security and his intelligence briefings, and that one would hope that he would take advantage of this time before the inauguration, to uh, to really uh, develop a relationship with the intelligence community and and become better informed and and that again speaks to the question of how does he yet understand that the intelligence community is there to assist him in his decision making process and uh, and can tailor their reports to areas that he wants to focus on and and that's where we really need to see um, some improvement in terms of him fleshing out who his senior leadership team is, who is going to be giving him the briefings. But I think that the if it's, in fact, true that he is receiving his briefings three times a week um, versus uh, just a couple since the election, then that's an improvement.
6: Yeah, Matt.
3: Yeah, the problem is this isn't about. I mean, that's good, but this isn't about like how many times a week you get the briefing or whether it's the PDB or you know the presidential daily brief that he reads and then gets briefed or he just hears the briefing. I mean, presidents do this differently uh, over in, in in history and in my experience, President Bush and, and President Obama handled it differently. But it does come back to how the world actually works and how people make important decisions, um, and they don't make decisions with the idea that, well, if something important happens, you know, come tell me. Um, and that's absurd. And that's not the way a, somebody in a leadership position who is responsible for putting American lives at risk uh, all the time uh, should be making decisions. So the, the, the information that comes to the president, if you think of uh, this as a pyramid, you know, at the, at the base of the pyramid, there's the vast amounts of intelligence that are collected by the intelligence community, and it, it works its way up uh, this pyramid to the very top where senior level uh, officials within the intelligence community with the best writers and the best analysts are making judgments about what their most important customer needs to know, the president of the United States. And that's at the very top, whether that's a, an in-person briefing or a PDB. And uh, if the, the president is, is dismissive of receiving that information and is disdainful uh, of facts in making those decisions... Uh, as we've seen, then we are in a a very perilous moment when the decisions, these are not, made; these are the decisions the president makes and is accountable for making, not the vice president, not the national security advisor, we've elected a president to make these decisions, are not decisions that he makes once uh, a month or even, you know, once a week. They are decisions that the president is called upon to make uh, multiple times a week on counterterrorism operations uh, in particular that involve the deployment of US military um, forces and putting American lives at risk. So the notion that that we can sort of accept uh, a, 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 a chief executive who is, you know, in the position of tell me if something important happens is truly alarming.
4: Carrie, yeah, quick point. just a very quick follow-up um i think that's a, a, exactly right and and just to put a finer point on it the deliberate rejection of briefings actually i think should be viewed not as sort of a benign i'm busy doing other things but actually as an abdication of responsibility so when a senior executive in government doesn't want to know what's in the briefings that uh I think, can be viewed through a lens of, therefore, should something happen as a result of the information that's in that briefings, they are not accountable. And we have seen, we have experienced, we have seen, uh, unfortunately, some members of, uh, I can think of one in particular, a member of Congress who has um, done this, and when they decline a briefing, and then therefore can speak publicly at will um, because they don't know, that that's not, a benign thing. That is a deliberate strategy.
5: Right. So, I agree entirely with what Kerry just said about sort of willful ignorance. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, we've had a big debate about surveillance and privacy. And um, I, I've made the point that you can simultaneously believe that there need to be more controls on surveillance. And that because there is a lot of surveillance and data that's being gathered by agencies that know what they're doing, they probably know a lot of stuff. Those two things make sense, you know, you, you know I've, I've actually gotten some, some uh, you know, some pushback or criticism saying, oh, well, now you guys like the intelligence community. I always liked the intelligence community, me <laughs> personally, but, but it's, you know, yes, that, that's the point, right? They, they gather information and they, they have it available to the president. Um, we can debate 702 and whether it has the right balance. Uh, but it is incredibly valuable. It provides all this information for the presidential daily brief. Um, if the president's not reading it, what's, what's the point? And, and I think Kerry's point is, is well taken that this is not just a uh, sort of lack of competence or uh, wanting to be, you, you know, do other things that are less uh, boring. It, it is a deliberate strategy. I, I agree with that. I think the people who uh, push aside information um, are doing so because it, pushes aside the responsibility. Since I didn't know that information, I, I can do what I like. And, and that's that's very, very worrying.
1: Uh, we have some time now for audience questions. So if there's something you'd like to ask, please raise your hand. Why don't we go over here to the, the gentleman in the pink tie here. Uh, please uh, wait for the microphone to reach you so that the online audience and everyone here in the audience can hear you uh, as well. And please do make it a comment and not a lecture. Thank you. <laughs> or, uh, or a sorry. question. How about a that? Question, not a lecture. Thank you.
7: Um, I come to this from a great fear. I'm sorry, fear, give your name and
1: affiliation, sir. I'm sorry.
7: Woody Kaplan uh, the Civil Liberties List. Um, I come to this, as the name implies, um, with a great fear of the imperial presidency. Started with Lyndon Baines Johnson. This is not partisan. Um, and I'm taken by a lot of the comments. I love Susan, but I think you might be naive, but you know more about it than I do. Um, the, uh, the U.S. attorneys with whom I've spoken have told me they can get away with virtually anything by creating probable cause and walking across the hall from the uh, NSA to at and or something and say, we need these records or we need this information. <coughs> the whole idea of having the watchers watch themselves, those employees of the organizations, because they're so full of goodwill. I'm greatly skeptical of that. And I'm greatly skeptical of almost all of the internal oversights. And I hope you guys would comment on that a little bit. Am I just paranoid or am I particularly
1: paranoid? It's, it's a great it's a great question. So what why should why should people believe people who are sitting up here saying trust us, these are rigorous mechanisms of oversight that were put in place and they work. We would like to address that?
2: I'll do a quick comment. So um, uh, look, uh, one, I uh, want to be sort of candid. It, it's possible that I'm wrong, right? Um, uh, I have a particular degree of faith that, that honestly boils down to, I know those people and I don't think, I think they would resign, right? And, and I understand that's not um, a formal institutional um, uh, sort of protection. Um, that said, I really do think this goes to um, uh, what is the strength of our, our faith in sort of in the institutional protections and what those look like. Um, so whenever I look back at this, sort of the history of the NSA, including things that occurred before I was there. Um, for example, the President's Surveillance Program. Um, the thing that is particularly concerning about the order of events is that the General Counsel's Office wasn't told. Um, that w- the General Counsel was told kind of at the very end of events. Um, that's a real problem. Uh, the way the agency is currently constructed, um, that could not happen again. I don't believe that could happen again, uh, that these programs could exist without uh, multiple members <laughs> of the General Counsel's Office and, for, and, and members of Congress knowing. Now, I'm sure that that um, uh, that's true only because the bad thing happened and then there was there was a response. Um, there are probably lots of different pockets of the government in which that potential hasn't occurred yet, and so there hasn't been a response. I think the way to address this is not necessarily to attack sort of the substantive, um, you know, is the uh, does this invade civil liberties? Is there a privacy uh, right? So what is the the sort of the substance of the authority? But instead, really think about how do we get multiple branches. Of government um, uh, involved in that oversight process, how do we build in um, technical compliance mechanisms? Right, do as much as possible to make sure we have multiple eyes, and it's not just the watchers watching themselves.
1: Anybody else want to briefly respond to that? Uh,
5: just just to say that I largely agree with that, but with the caveat that policies, of course, can be changed, and that was the point that I was trying to make about the the power of the executive branch. Um, you know. The, the director of NSA works for the Secretary of Defense and the General Counsel's Office advises the director. So if, you know, Trump's attorney general says, this is my opinion about what the law means and what the Constitution means, and there's no, you know, court decision that says that that attorney general opinion is wrong, it, you know, as a structural matter, it doesn't matter what the general counsel of the NSA thinks about that, whether he disagrees or di- or, or she disagrees with that. Um, that's, we saw a little bit of, and that was the, the rationale for denying, you know, access, um, but you know, there's a, there's a broader point here. I mean, the, the the president is has a lot of power, and and you know is in charge of the executive branch, and uh, all of these mechanisms are important, and I believe in them, not just because I, you know, I know a lot of those people and was one of those people, but because you know I think that that they were well designed in many cases, but uh, they are still nevertheless within an executive branch process, and they rely on. Um, types of, of control, and this is my biggest concern, is not so much the calibration of how much or little you do and how close to that chalk line you get, but they rely on a president of the United States taking that in as a control on his behavior, even though they work for him. Um, they rely on a kind of uh, degree of, of shame, being required. And and that's true, of course, of even of checks and balances for Congress and the courts. Um, So so those are, Jack Goldsmith wrote a wonderful piece in Lawfare uh, called Libertarian Panic, you know, criticizing people like me, saying that we're involved in a libertarian panic. Not not so much criticizing, actually he was praising us in a sort of odd way, saying it's a good thing you're panicking because that's the reason these abuses won't happen. Um, But it still may be a bit of a panic. And, uh, and my part of my response was, well, yeah, that was the American Revolution, um, was a libertarian panic. Because you look at that list of, of grievances in the Declaration of Independence, and they're kind of they're out there. I mean, they're, they're, not, you know, they're not a fair description of what the British were actually doing. They're sort of uh, over the top. So in a, in a way, our country was founded on the basis of a libertarian panic. Um, but, but also making the point that I think that all the controls Jack was describing... Uh, which come from his wonderful book, Power and Constraint, which I, I largely agree with, uh, You know, work for different political philosophies, different political parties, but do they work for Trump? That's a very open question in my mind.
1: Uh, the next thing I saw was the gentleman in the middle here in the fourth row with his hand up. Yes.
6: Uh, I'm Ahmed Dean Ahmed with the Minaret of Freedom Institute. Uh, you all seem to uh, agree that the, and I want to get back this question of the DNC hacking by the Russians. You all seem to agree that the reason Trump doesn't accept that is because of his disdain for the facts. But I have two questions, and I'm not a Trump supporter, but I can see why Trump supporters might feel a disconnect from the people in power. There are two questions about facts. You criticize Trump for, uh, uh, for his uh, attributing political motives to the CIA but don't address the precedent of the Clinton supporters who attributed political motives to the FBI. Would you comment on that? The other question is, the, uh, Ju- you might not want to accept Julian Assange saying that he got his sore information not from Russian hackers, but from a DNC insider, because you don't believe Julian Assange. But he was supported by Craig Murphy, who said he met the DNC insider. And that's where the information came from, not from Russian hackers. Would you address that?
1: We'd like to address either of those points briefly.
2: So just, I mean, briefly, uh, people who, who uh, uh, allege that Jim Comey uh, weighed in uh, for political reasons I, I think were wrong. I, I think that was an unfair assessment. Um, you can talk about whether or not it was the right decision or the wrong decision and, and whether it was a, a wise decision or, or an unwise one, um, uh, but to the extent people uh, accused uh, uh, that activity of being political, um, that's plainly true, or that's plainly false. Um, some of the leaks that occurred after, sort of in the, in the final week of the election, I, I did find deeply troubling and... and uh, do have concerns that there were potential political motivations there Um, uh, but that's uh, just as as sort of Trump deserves criticism Um, people who uh, took shots at the FBI on those grounds I I think fairly deserve criticism as well. Um, As to this question of um, whether or not we should take the words of uh, Julian Assange and and Craig Wright over uh, uh, the unanimous uh, judgment of the US intelligence community um, that's a non-starter of a question Um, we're we're talking about uh, signals, intercepts, forensic documents documents, um, uh, even the weight of of public evidence, um, the notion that there is not a direct connection between the hacking of the DNC, uh, the passage of those documents to WikiLeaks and their ultimate dissemination, uh, I think even from the outside is absurd on its face, added with the sort of the the very detailed intelligence assessment provided in October. um, I, I just I don't think there's any credibility to those claims at all. Very brief.
4: Very brief. The, the questions that you raised there, I think, though, do demonstrate why there needs to be a bipartisan congressional investigation so that, so that people can have better answers to these questions and have some confidence that, that an actual investigation was conducted and that it's done in a bipartisan way.
1: Okay, and one last right here, very brief. Yeah, on the end here. Hi,
8: Liza Goyting with the Brennan Center for Justice. Um, is this on? Okay. Um, I'm not nearly as sanguine as as some of you that that we can rely on. For example, the general counsels to protect us. The key general counsels are political appointments. We've heard the name of David Addington floated for the general counsel of DoD. That doesn't give me great confidence. But I also agree with Tim that I think the greatest risk is not blatantly illegal conduct, conduct but conduct within the great discretion that has been allowed by our expanded laws. And it's it's f- a bit frustrating for me to hear Matt say, you know. When we, when we worked on these laws, we never thought about the potential of a Trump, because civil libertarian advocates like myself were making that case as hard as we could, you know, as much as you trust this administration, what about the next one? Look at our history, you know, this is about potential for abuse, but the question isn't if, it's when, so I feel like there's, but anyway, I actually do have a question, um, and my question <laughs> is, despite, despite what I just said, I, I certainly have a lot of respect, um, Matt, for your perspective, um, and, and carry and all of you, and I, and you talked about the fact that you think the greatest threat to civil liberties abuses isn't from the surveillance side, but other counterterrorism policies. And I know, Carrie, you mentioned the Diog and the FBI um, guidelines. What are some of the other counterterrorism areas where you feel like the potential for abuse is greatest, and where maybe some of us should be focusing maybe more than the sort of laser focus we've had on surveillance? And you'll have to give us the truncated version.
3: Very short, because time. this is a this could be a long conversation. The respect is mutual, Elizabeth. So. Um, um, and I think the, and the, I do think that the, the focus on, you know, that we were engaged in, you and I, you know, talking about 702 and really trying to figure out where exactly to draw the line on searching for US person information, for example, really highlighted um, that, 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 that that controversy, that debate had really become really focused on some very uh, specific and kind of narrow, but important issues. I think we've moved way beyond that now in, and in terms of the things to be concerned about. So to answer your question, I do think that the greatest area of risk from civil liberties and privacy, civil liberties perspective, is domestic law enforcement. Um, and again, taking the, the scenario of the day after or the weeks after an attack in the United States, the the, 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 the the wide discretion which we rightly give to the FBI and in particular to local police departments and law enforcement to investigate uh, crimes and to preserve our safety domestically, there is the potential when the leadership of our country uh, makes the statements that we've talked about making, right, in terms of the the Muslim community and uh, and how we should be reacting uh, after a terrorist attack. I think the greatest fear, and I'm not sure what you you're you're much better positioned to think about how to constrain those activities. But the idea of greater surveillance that doesn't even rise to the level of going to a judge um, of, of of investigative powers that law enforcement, that police officers, and again we're talking like local police departments are going to have to basically be in a position to to. Um, I think intrusively be involved in neighborhoods and communities in a way that is uh,
1: not American. Please join me in thanking this great panel for a really stimulating (laughs) discussion.